it's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM, our weekly chance to sit down with award-winning journalists from all over the East End to talk about the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27east.com, and Express Magazine. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Great panel today. We have Christopher Ganjemi, who is a staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chris. Good morning. Good to have you here. Uh, Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Hey, how you doing? And we have Michael Mackey, who's the Long Island host of Morning Edition right here on WLIWFM. Michael, thanks for sharing the airwaves with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me and good morning, friends. Good to have you. So, Chris, Chris, let's talk with you first. Um, East Hampton Ambulance had a raft of volunteers who walked away this week. Tell us why and see if you can you know, give us a little bit of background on what's going on down there, because it's it's a very interesting development with the with the volunteer ambulance down there. OK, well, there's deep a lot. Breath. Yeah, <laughs> deep, deep breath. This is, this is a complicated one, right? Um, I have to say that I only really started writing about this uh, six months ago, and there's a whole vocabulary that I had to learn um, to even begin to ad- address the ambulance. Um, they're their own, or, or, or in 1975, East Hampton Village Ambulance Association became a thing. Mm-hmm. And for the last 48 years, they've been providing ambulance service to the village, kind of as a separate um entity but the village provides them with ambulances and you know all all of the their their infrastructure really comes from the village a, a couple of years ago when mayor larson came into office um you know and there's a lot of he said she said that goes back and forth uh, apparently one of the earlier conversations he had with the ambulance association in the middle of covid this would have been too is about billing for rides which created a, a fear in the in the group now there's also and why, you know, I, let me stop you there chris because yeah. we'll take this sort of a bite at a time okay why is billing why is billing such a controversial topic among the voluntary ambulance companies this is about billing for the services that are provided to people um, and not not providing those ambulance services free of charge. It's about billing insurance companies generally, correct? Yes. But I think that the reason why they have an issue with it is because they're volunteering their time. And I, I just feel like they think it's the exact opposite um, or, or it might it might cause people to not want to call an ambulance. Mm. Uh, people might be afraid of, of getting a bill. And, you know, there's this whole idea that you might receive a bill, but you don't have to pay it. Um, they're going to try to get you to pay it a few times. And if you don't pay it, then it goes into some kind of, uh, you know, nether world. Into a charitable uh, proposal yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, uh, you know, as, as a middle-class dude, if I get a, a bill, uh, I'm going to pay it. I mean, I'm not going to play around and think, oh, I don't have to pay this bill because, you know, you're nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if your credit score gets affected or anything like that? So they had a, they had a similar situation in Flanders and, and Flanders Ambulance started um, sent, sending out bills. But the, the the caveat was that if you're a resident of, of the ambulance district, then you shouldn't get a bill and, and you shouldn't have to pay it. But again, v- residents were were in fact getting getting bills and, and complaining about that and they didn't know what to do. And so a, a very similar situation and do you know how do you ignore the bill? And and the the fear was that because they were getting bills, didn't know what to do with them. If if they got sick in the future, they wouldn't call the ambulance because they didn't want to get this this new uh bill for hundreds of dollars or, or thousands of dollars. I'm not sure what you know what how much how much the the, the service is. Um, but it, it just creates that whole uh, confusion there. And, yeah. and and the the alternative is just to leave that money on the table, right, Chris? Right. I mean, um, and then 
operating it as it is and as it has been. There's questions, I mean, about how much money they would actually raise when you can actually bill. But I also want to be clear that, you know, the mayor has said while they're exploring this option, that this he's saying, you know, this 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 law change has really nothing to do with that. You know, that, you know, if you want to take him at, at his word on that, that that's what he's saying, that it doesn't you know, it's not really about billing. But the point I'm making is that when he became mayor, that I feel like if that is indeed one of the early conversations they had, it created this maybe situation of distrust or contention between, if you want to say, two sides of this mm -hmm. situation. Rift. Yeah. And then it's also COVID and they're operating these ambulances during the hardest time. Um, and then you fast forward to this past summer. One of the main events in this uh, argument is there was a, a situation at Main Beach during one of the, the village uh, events and uh, an ambulance is called. It turns out a Springs ambulance shows up, not an East Hampton Village ambulance. And uh, the you know, mayor is somewhat embarrassed by this. Like, why isn't it our, our village ambulance? Instead, they had to do this thing called mutual aid, where, mm -hmm. you know, if they, they call a village ambulance where nobody's there. It turns out they were out on another call. Um, Springs comes. And, and then Randy Hoffman, who is a, a volunteer, um, gets suspended in August. Um, for apparently, you know, creating a hostile work environment. Apparently, there was a divide between the, the paid EMTs and paramedics and the volunteers. There was the, this the cult taking place within the, the department, even. Yeah, there was this cultural divide between the two. And on top of this, then, like I said in the beginning, East Hampton Village Ambulance Association has been operating since 1975. There is this thing called a certificate of need that defines who is in, I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but who's in charge of, of the ambulance services. And there's some jockeying that goes on between the, you know, the village administration saying, look, we, if, if somebody doesn't get an ambulance, they're going to call the village. They're not going to call the ambulance association. So clearly we're the ones who need, we, we deserve this certificate of need. They hired a lawyer. It gets switched to the village without the ambulance association's knowledge. Mm. The ambulance association then hires a lawyer to explore this and try to get it back. And so you see this, the, the problem. And now, um, or at least you can see there's this contention between the two sides. And now today, in fact, in just a couple of hours, they're going to have Friday. a public uh, yes. For, okay. We're going to have a public hearing on this law that the village has put out to basically create an ambulance department. And they're going to be in charge of who the chiefs are in the ambulance association. Previously, the ambulance association voted in their own chiefs. They had their own officers and the village is saying, Hey, we want to do that. And the, um, the analogy that the mayor gives is a good one. You know, he says, what if what if we decided that we needed speed enforcement with the police department on, you know, uh, at two o'clock on a Sunday? And I told the chief this and the chief said, OK, hang on, I got to go uh, get a vote from all of the uh, police officers to see if they think this is a good idea. You know, the mayor feels kind of like what? Like they can't have this control. I mean, if we feel that there's a change that needs to be made. He wants to be in charge of it. So that is um, a very quick and sloppy history, I would say, of yeah, the uh, the situation there. Um, it's and, it's Bill, you had mentioned it's not a situation that's unique either. I mean, we've seen uh, I think this is this is being pushed forward a bit by Mayor Jerry Larson uh, in a little more aggressive fashion. But this is a debate that's playing out in ambulance companies all over our area. Well, well the, the billing part for sure. I mean, who's who's in control and in charge of the ambulance company may be a little um, a, a little unique. I mean, I, I think that you, you do have some ambulance companies that are that are contracted with a municipality, with a village or, or a town. But I think you have a lot of independent ambulance companies out out there as well. And this seems like um, because the village has been collecting taxes, um, you know, through through property taxes and 
paying for the infrastructure of of the ambulance company that that you know that the mayor feels that the village should um um you know should the buck should stop with with the village and and the village should be in control of of that company and it not be kind of a separate organization and and i think it, it's it, it's a it's a strange thing sometimes when you have that um you have a, a it's a, it's a municipal ambulance but it's been run by a different organization and you may see that in some other municipalities um you know on on long island because you have all these volunteer groups but um yeah it's a really interesting question who's in charge you know well i mean with a lot of municipalities it's probably not the case in a, a village like um you know but with mid towns there are a number of entities that provide these services. I mean, there's, you know, fire districts and those right. are separate legal entities. I mean, and so in the town of Riverhead, there's the Wading River Fire District that provides rescue services in the Wading River Fire District. There's the Manorville Fire District that provides that. Well, there's Manorville Community Ambulance that provides services in the Manorville Fire District. There's um, the Jamesport Fire District that runs an ambulance, although they do that in concert with the Riverhead Volunteer Ambulance. And there's the Riverhead Volunteer Ambulance District that has, you know, the rest of the town. And so, and and, and they're all and they all have their own tax lines, right? I mean, the yes, the, the mean, res the residents of those districts pay pay specifically into a district tax, and, and that tax and the, and the fire districts are completely independent, right? They're run by the trustees, the board of commissioners, rather right. than the fire district. But the Riverhead Ambulance District, the town board, is the governing body of the ambulance district. Right. And that they set the taxes and they collect the taxes and they then enter into a contract with Riverhead Volunteer Ambulance, which is a not-for-profit corporation. And that contract spells out what services they're going to provide. But, um, you know, we've they started billing for ambulances, uh, ambulance calls resulting from motor vehicle accidents in Riverhead Town in 2017. And then this year, um, they have begun billing for all ambulance calls. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing The the volunteer, they were not happy about it. They were worried that people aren't going to call an ambulance because they're going to be, you know, especially the seniors, they're going to get all, you know, worked up and worried about it. And I have to say, from my own experience with an ambulance bill I got from my for an ambulance ride my daughter had in Massachusetts, my and my insurance company just refused, you know, declined the the, mm. the payment. And all it took was a, a five, you know ten minute phone call to my insurance company, and they you know they corrected it. I don't know, but how many people would then just you know turn around and just start pay paying that five hundred or seven hundred dollar bills? Whoops. Absolutely. And that's part of the problem. Chris, it, yeah. it sounds like it sounds like though the, the East Hampton Village is 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 a little different rather than than having you know the ambulance company set up as that nonprofit corporation or whatever. It's it's the this this group in East Hampton has been kind of just running the ambulance for the village. And and I, I'm not sure that there was a, a delineation there like you might see in and some of these riverhead companies where it's it's the actual ambulance company corporation the ambulance company owns the infrastructure owns the ambulances and all that it sounds like in east hampton village it was a little different where where it was the village paying all the bills buying the ambulances like you said chris and, and having that infrastructure and then just kind of letting this you know this other organization come in and kind of and kind of run it and it's almost I, I guess you know larson's idea is is to kind of turn them into into kind of like uh, i don't know if i want to use the word booster but kind of like an, an organization that would then support that ambulance company but but wouldn't be running the ambulance company exactly yeah. exactly and i i feel like that's also a point of contention because you know some people who were at the meeting with him um, last week where he he addressed the the main core where like you know he led with this talk about parties and um fraternal stuff and we didn't join the ambulance for parties or fraternal stuff we joined the ambulance to serve the community and i feel like they were insulted by this idea that this you know group that many people who've been volunteering for decades um 
you know, should be some kind of booster organization. He does point to a letter from 2004, I believe, uh, with then village administrator Larry Cantwell uh, told them they, they should really register. They weren't incorporated and they did incorporate at that time. And, you know, so that they could receive, I, I believe it was so they could receive outside funds for these kinds of functions. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, they, they've always been more than that, you know, um, in, in, in their view. And I think that, yeah, I feel like there's some pride stuff going on on both sure. sides. And it's unfortunate because this is emergency services that we're talking about. It's not like a small, it's not a small thing. It's a big thing. And we go back to the lead, um, Chris, that uh, this past week, one of the, the the fears was that some of the volunteers, and they, they had basically had said that this could happen, that a lot of the volunteers would just walk away. Did, did that happen? Yes. Um, You know, uh, prior, you know, I guess in December of 2021, there were 47 uh, volunteers. Um, Now we're down to, you know, maybe 30, 31. Um, And, you know, more are saying that they may leave. A lot of people are tied to the village in some way, the employment or whatever it is. And so there's all these other sticky situations that, that develop. But yes, people did walk away. You know, there's been a communication breakdown between the two sides. You wonder if there was another way to go about this, if there was a, 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 a you know, or, or not. Maybe it just had to come to a head. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, you mentioned also about, you know, and I and I spoke with Peter Van Skoyak about this this week, too, where, you know, because the Northwest Woods contracts with the the village ambulance runs calls there. Right. And so the town has to pay the village and and his position was kind of like, why are they doing anything at all here? Um, you know, this has been operating as it is. And, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't want to see the apple cart. You know, if, if it ain't broke, don't don't fix it. Type yeah. Thing, right. 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 Yeah. Mike, Michael, there's there's kind of a uh, historical context to all this. Right. I mean, the the, the ambulance companies. And this is true um, nationally, I think, uh, especially in small communities. The ambulance services really um, is something that a lot of communities take great pride in, that they created their their volunteer ambulance uh, corps to to provide that service. And there's there's a fierce kind of loyalty to keeping those those, um, volunteers, even in a day and age when the amount of commitment of time and energy that's required is, is immense. Right. Yeah, I think the story in East Hampton is transcendent in two ways that Chris reports. First of all, the tension between paid employees and volunteers that speaks to the human condition, the struggle for authority and control, and also the other element with even the most healthy and and vital uh, and successful organizations on the East End, EMT and emergency services and ambulance is staffing, just finding enough people mm-hmm. who are present and, and can help with it. So the last thing you would need in the East Hampton Village Ambulance or anybody else is to be losing people. Mm-hmm. Now, these people sound like they're they're going over and they're, they're continuing their volunteer work with, with Springs and other and Bridgehampton and so forth. But it's uh, it's uh, finding finding enough people to man the services that we require, emergency and and uh, EMT and so forth and ambulance. Wow, that's only going to be uh, more and more of a challenge. So, and with that, that in mind, with that in mind, Chris, uh, there are some folks who have suggested that Mayor Larson's taking this on is sort of a quixotic. I mean, that that it really was kind of unnecessary to stir the pot. It's a complicated topic that I think a lot of ambulance companies need to address. But to address it as aggressively as the mayor did here, um, and risk the kind of fallout and, and and kind of splitting the divide even further that we're seeing is kind of risky because the, the, the community still relies on that service. Yeah. I, and uh, I, Michael's point's great about housing. I mean, it all ties into, to, into, you know, our, our paid. And I also want to say that the, the ambulance association doesn't not have a problem with supplementing with paid people. I mean, they've, they've told me that, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe some did, but I, I think that I don't think they have a real problem with that, but are, is the village going to be able to hire people who want to sit through the, the trade parade if they're coming from, from West 
and retain them? That's that's really a big question um, if they're going to be able to do that. And I just want to point out one other thing because you talked about the transcendent nature of the story, uh, Michael. And I think there's also something here about just change. And this place has seen so much change in the last couple of years. And there are people who I identify strongly, like with pride as a volunteer, an ambulance volunteer. And, and you know, this kind of is, is just another thing that's kind of going away. And I think that, you know, there's, there's fear associated with that too. And what about our community? You know, it's, it's all tied together. So it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. And not Denise, easy. Denise, I wonder, you made the point that, that other ambulance companies are dealing with the same issues. I wonder if there isn't, if it isn't time to, to maybe take a step back and think about uh, a bigger overhaul of the system so that, so that there's, you know, I, I'm not sure how you do that or what that looks like, but with so many departments having the same issue and so many municipalities having it, it feels like maybe it's time to come up with some general uh, direction for how we deal with these, these hybrid companies that are volunteer ambulance companies, but have paid staff to help supplement the, the service. Yeah, I don't, I mean, to take that on as a, a strictly paid service, uh, the cost would be astronomical. And I think mm -hmm. the service level would plummet. I really do. I, I you know, I mean, yeah, it, it may be hard to uh, rustle up a crew or two or three or four. Sometimes we have going on at Riverhead at the same time, um, you know, with all volunteers. But, you know, they, they managed to do it for the most part, supplemented with paid responders during like typical work at workday hours. But, you know, to, to staff those buses, as they call them, with fully paid, you know, uh, EMS, um, would be an astronomical cost. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I, I listening to what you said, Chris, I mean, I, that was an incredibly tone deaf way for the mayor to start a conversation with these people. Like, you know, you're in it for the parties. Like, I, I mean, well, I'm, I didn't hear what he said, but you know, if that was the gist of how he came across, like, wow. Um, you know, if there, there have been some rough times in Riverhead here with Riverhead Volunteer Ambulance Corps and the town board for a variety of management reasons. And, um, you know, there have been some rumblings about like a mass walkout. <laughs> but if, if that ever happened, I don't know. I really don't know what, what the community, you know, what the town would do, what the community would do. Um, you know, they've got great response times because they're here on the ground. They're local, you know. Um, and that's what makes it work. Um, and that and the effort of these professional EMS who, uh, you know, volunteer their time. I mean, a lot of these a lot of these people, too, have jobs working as, you know, paid, prov paid providers in other districts around the mm -hmm. around the county. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, thank goodness there are a number of fairly large employers like uh, Riverhead Building Supply that, you know, they they their their policy is that firefighters and ambulance, you know, like the call comes in, you go, you know, like they, they really support that. And there are a few employers in the town that do that. So I don't know. I really think it's an important community service and, you know, the town, we all need to be like grateful that these folks do this. I mean, you know, there were over five, they answered over 5,300 or something calls last year. In wow. Yeah. Wow. Chris, big, big hearing on Friday then. So I'm sure you'll be yeah. providing coverage that will uh, send people over to your website to, to see how that goes. I'm going to be following that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really, and it's like I said, I think it's an issue that, that is not unique to East Hampton Village, but you, East Hampton Village is uniquely taking it on, I think. And mm -hmm. that might be mm -hmm. uh, interesting to watch. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We are from the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Christopher Gangemi of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Michael Mackey of right here at WLIWFM. Denise, uh, I want to switch to Riverhead and talk about the states. So Governor Andrew Cuomo had, had put this uh, cap in place on tax levy increases from year to year in an effort to sort of put a control on 
property taxes on the local level, uh, and it's uh, outlasted him, and it's in remains in place and continues to be in place and probably will be in place for the foreseeable future. Riverhead made a discovery this past week uh, that's fairly significant, right? Well, it was actually brought <laughs> it was actually brought to the attention of the town board by the auditor last it last year in last ah, year's so audit. We we found and, out about this week basically. And and um so uh, you know, I was sitting in the uh in the meeting where the auditor gave their uh this was for the 2021 fiscal year uh audit report and um Riverhead's always a little slow in getting those but um the report was done it was filed by the September 30th deadline the uh financial administrator told me and and I know personally it's been on um, the website since at least uh, December, you know, um, and, and um, there's this little note in the in the audit report that says that um, the town pierced the tax cap from 2018 through 2022. Wow. And, so that's like, what, five years? Yeah. Um, and I. You know, they mentioned it very briefly in this meeting and, you know, the auditors were appearing on Zoom and it was like kind of, I don't know, it was a messed up situation. It was hard to hear them. And I, it was not a good uh, technology wise, it was not a good a good uh, setup. And um, at the end of the meeting, you know, at the end of the presentation, the financial administrator walked out of the room and I followed him. <laughs> okay, wait, what? <laughs> because this just kind of went past everybody. I mean, I have no way of knowing really if they actually discussed this with the town board privately or something, but there was just no like glimmer of any kind of response or recognition of this among the members of the town board. And, um, you know, I spoke with one of them afterwards who was like, well, you know, no. <laughs> so I don't know. It's like a so weird there, thing. So are, what are happened there, was, in, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm just going uh, to, I mean, what are, what, are, what are the repercussions to a town for for um, exceeding the tax cap. I know nothing, right? I mean, was just like does, for, just like for school, violating the open meetings law, apparently, right. you know, <laughs> with, with, with school districts, there are a lot of repercussions. They, you know, they have to, you know, they can put it up for another vote, but then they have to go to an austerity budget after that. And it can affect the residents, um, you know, star uh, the payments town, from the state, but it, for the town, it's really the nothing. The town did right? this without following the procedure. Like they, they're supposed to, pass a local law that, you know, after a public hearing, authorizing them to override the tax levy cap. They right. didn't do that. They did that for 2023, apparently for different reasons. But and and so what happens is that they how this happened in Riverhead, according to the financial administrator and the auditor relying on the, the administrator's information, was that a um, when they when they got the amount of the of the tax cap in, for the 2018. Now, this budget would have been prepared in 2017. So this goes from Sean Walter, Laura Jen Smith, um, to um, it, the current supervisor, Yvette Aguiar. And uh, they apparently got, got the wrong number. It pre, the pre-fill, it pre-filled, the website pre-filled the, with the wrong amount. Five, five times. No, no. So what happens is that happened for the 2018 budget. But then now you are, you know, a, a compound. Very forward. Yeah. And so, and so, what they had to do to remedy this was to create a um, a liability in like on their books, an accrued liability for the amount of the of the excess, which like went from three hundred fifty thousand dollars the first year, and they had to do this retroactively to. 700,000 the next year. I mean, they were up to 1.5 million. Oh and my God. they wow. got, I mean, what they got saved by like, so what that meant that they had to set aside that much money in the next year's budget to like offset that. So like they had to levy those taxes and, but uh, offset this accrued li liability. So it was like an autofill problem. Oh, <laughs> initially, apparently I, you know, I don't know, but but um, that's great. So yeah. Blame so, spell check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, 
um, they they were saved in all of this by uh, circumstances in that in 2021, when they when they prepared the budget for 2022, now 2021 was a local election year. So what do local politicians do? A lot of times they like they don't raise taxes, right? Because, you know, they want to not raise taxes when they're running for election and a re-election. And so there was like a zero tax increase in 2021. So that allowed them to make up some of this lost ground. But then mm. in 2022 for the 2023 budget, the the budget they pierced the tax cap for other other reasons. I mean, it, it was this was built into the reason whether they realized it or not, uh, you know. But they pierced the tax cap, and that allowed them to make <laughs> to make up for. They the did it the right way. They did it the right way yeah. this time and 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 made the catch up. But to Bill's point, there's no real repercussions. But for there this, are right? no, uh, yeah. I mean, they I don't have a price in, in but in but way. but as as a Riverhead property taxpayer, I got to ask, what's the effect on me? Well, I mean, am uh, I paying more taxes because of that? You were paying more taxes, you know, to make up for it. Well. I mean, you were paying more taxes right along, kind of, because they pierced it without, you know. So I don't know that there's, it's not like any big impact on you, but there was a big impact on how they prepared the budget and what they could do with the money that they raised, because they had to set aside some of it to, you know, fulfill, like, you know, offset this accrued liability. Um, I feel like I if don't know. you I'm weren't. St- I'm still angry. And, and if you weren't paying attention, Denise, this might have just slipped past and. We might not even know about it. Well, I got to say, I wasn't paying attention well enough last year because I, I didn't I didn't catch this last year. And I was like, I, I can't tell you how many hours I spent trying to understand this this week. Mm-hmm. It gave mm-hmm. me a headache. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, this weekend last because I was going back and forth with a financial administrator who I think is still mad at me anyway. Yeah, I think Bill gave you a preview, though, of the only thing that that matters to people is, so what's this mean on my bottom line? Oh, yeah, that's very true. And they're going to be angry anyway, because people, you know, I'm sorry, Bill, people are just angry all the time about everything. Yeah, I know. That was my point. (laughs) (laughs) The pocketbook part of it is definitely, definitely why, though, too. Uh, I don't know. It seems to be, uh, you know, they they got on, uh, you know, solid ground this year, and hopefully they stay there. That's something. Yeah, it was Um, kind of a funny story, honestly. but. I want to remind people that we're on Behind the Headlines on WLAWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Our panelists are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Christopher Gangemi of the East Hampton Star, and Michael Mackey of right here at WLAWFM. And Michael, uh, we had some news this week that uh, Robert Challoner, who is the Chief Administrative Officer of, South, of Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, um, is leaving his post. He's been in there for, uh, I can't recall. He's been in Since there for 2006. 2006. That's the date. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and he came in at a time when the hospital was in real turmoil. And, and it's hard to overstate um, the significant role that he played in getting the hospital to where it is today. And um, he's leaving that role um, in order to take on a new role. What's he going to be doing? Well, first of all, he's he's highly esteemed. You talk to hospital personnel and nobody has a bad word to say about him. And, and most authority figures have a, a lot of people that have foul things to say about them, regardless of how competent and able they are. <laughs> so Robert Challoner has been very successful in turning around what was a troubling and difficult situation uh, debt-wise and, and uh, spirit-wise back in 2006. He has effectively... Um, uh, seen through the transition from Southampton Hospital being an independent entity to part of the Stony Brook uh, medical system. So since 2017, he's been the administrative officer for Southampton Hospital, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital now. And it's he, he wants to step away from that. He says it's going to take about four or five months to find the uh, right successor and see through the transition. And then he's going to concentrate fully on uh, raising the funds, $300 million, to get started on Southampton Hospital, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, hospital being relocated to the uh, Southampton College campus on uh, County Road 39, between County Road 39 and uh, 27A Montauk Highway. So that's quite a challenge. It's been delayed because of COVID-19. They originally were projecting doing it by 225. It looks like it's going to happen at some point later than that. Uh, 
We have a lot going on in County Road 39. 2026 is the U.S. Open uh, Golf Championship. If construction is ongoing at that time for the Southampton, New Southampton Stony Brook Hospital, wow, that ought to be fun to observe. And then throw into that the two years of of County Road 39 work for putting new sidewalks in. New sidewalks, new sidewalks uh, on County, County Road, Road 39. Road. Some people are wondering what's what's the, that's still a little confusing to some. Nine Just, million dollars that they had to spend on something. Everybody's gonna have to take the train for uh, two years. years. Yeah, I think good, it's gonna be a good good thing the trains run so well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that's the wrong. But look back to Bob Challoner. I yeah. you know I. Michael, you and I have both been around and we saw a lot of hospital administrators at at Southampton and um, of varying degrees of success and effectiveness. I think it's fair to say that Bob Challoner is far and away the the strongest leader they have ever had there. And, And I think he was the guy that they really needed through this past 15 years or so to get through all of the changes in healthcare and 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 to get them to where they are today. Yeah, he steadied the ship, he kept it from sinking, and uh, and then he built upon it. The, Bob Challoner told uh, the, the Press Newspaper Group that it's really necessary to move the facility from uh, where it is now in Southampton Village to uh, the Stony Brook Southampton uh, College campus. But in the meantime, the improvements they've made at the old 110-year-old uh, site, uh, allow it to operate as a modern facility. But they they can only carry on uh, so long. It's it's necessary to to build a new facility and and stay up to date with the 21st century uh, advancements in medicine and, and serve the people accordingly. However, it does bring up another issue. The hospital will then be another five miles further west. And uh, what happens with the folks who live in uh, the, the town of East Hampton and the uh, eastern edge of the town of uh, Southampton. So um, th- that's being addressed well, also with satellite yeah. centers and so forth. Well, they're built and they're building the new new emergency room in, in East Hampton, a, a, a large facility. I don't remember that. I don't know, Chris, if you know exactly remember what the cost was with that, but uh, multi, you know, multi-millions of dollars, the uh, a new state-of-the-art emergency room that, um, that I, I think is certainly going to help with, with, you know, the point that, that Michael brings up. I mean, when you've got people that need hospitalization and, and are urgently in, in Montauk um, or, you know, points East, East Hampton and, and, and all that to get to Southampton, especially if there's traffic and in, in the summertime can, you know, can take 45 minutes and, and that's critical time that you don't want to lose. So I think that the new, uh, the new emergency room is, is really going to be a help there. And, and it should be pointed out that that hospital emergency room in East Hampton is a project that came in under Bob Challoner. And, right. and it was something that had been discussed for a long time but uh, Bob got it done. Um, I, I really, Denise, when we put this into the context of the hospital, I mean, you, we just spoke last week uh, in, in some depth about some of the projects that they're doing at Peconic Bay Medical Center to expand. And um, I, I think Michael cited the fact that South, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital is in a hundred year old building that they've had to sort of retrofit to, to be a modern uh, medical facility. And, and I think they've done a decent job of that, but the limitations continue. And I think the pandemic uh, had a huge impact on that as well. I think Bob Challoner has said they learned a lot about how a new hospital needs to look in the future in ways that, that they didn't know 10 years ago. Um, this is just sort of a, a challenge for the healthcare community um, on the entire East End I think I think all of the hospital organizations and there are more out here uh, with a presence on the East End than we've seen in a long time are going to need to to have that that going forward. And having Bob Challoner take on the role of just thinking about this new facility is probably necessary. It, it sounds that way to me. I mean, I think just fundraising that that level of money, just fundraising that amount of money is is, you know, more than a full time job. Um, but um, you know, <clears throat> healthcare has changed and continues to change and evolve. I mean, um, with 
new technologies for uh, invasive procedures and fewer invasive procedures needed. People are not spending time in hospital rooms like they used to. I mean, you know, a lot of things are done on outpatient on an outpatient basis. Ambulatory service, sur- surgery, and ambulatory services in general are on the increase. So they really are. You know, even younger buildings are, need to retool. You know. Um, to to accommodate that, as well as to accommodate the new equipment that comes in. I mean, you know, they, they did um, an overhaul. They, well, they opened a new surgical center um, in Peconic Bay Medical Center um, in like 2009. And I should mention it, um, I, for 2009 to 2010, I actually worked at Peconic Bay Medical Center. And um, I the... The difference between the hospital rooms, the old hospital rooms and the new hospital, I mean, they were like twice the size, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to, to just to be able to accommodate the new equipment, the, the, the robots the, for the robotic surgery. I mean, it's a completely different setup. And, um, you know, so you've got to, to try to retrofit a 100 year old hospital for that kind of thing would be, I think, you know, next to impossible. So. Hey, I like them to work on the gowns. You know, those, I mean, when's the last time they've updated those gowns you have to wear? You know? That should be a top priority. No question. Yeah, and I don't want to sour the transition, but one of the things I worry about is the, the new dynamic in play is that Stony Brook Medicine is the overarching uh, provider of care at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. And one of the things that Bob Challoner, I think, brought, and, and Michael, I think maybe you can you can verify that this is the case, that Bob Challoner always brought a very Southampton and East Hampton-centric view of this hospital and kind of kept that independent hospital feeling with Stony Brook Southampton. If Stony Brook steps in and puts in a, a bureaucrat to run Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, I, I fear a step back in that regard. I think that's one of the risky factors here. It would be ideal if they could find a terrific a candidate to succeed uh, Mr. Challoner, who actually lived in the town of Southampton. Uh, Challoner, as I said, was admired, it, it seems, by virtually everybody who worked with him and, and, and for him at Southampton Hospital. Even through the transition, it says Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, but he kept it that that local feel. And he's out in the streets. People in Sag Harbor talk about uh, connecting with him here and there. So he didn't uh, make it feel like it, it wasn't that big a change going from old fashioned Southampton Hospital, our local community hospital to Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. But if there's a, a if the new director and administrative officer it, is is from Setauket or something? Will that make it uh, a difference? Will it make us feel more distant with the uh, operations there? I'm not. I'm not sure. But Chowder definitely led a uh, lent a, a a local feel to it, and and he he certainly saw through the transition by by being a human link. Now let's we'll see should, if should the, be the right candidate. Bob came in from the outside, so I mean he yeah, he but was, really he, but really adopted uh, adopted the community when he came out here. I think, and the community adopted him. It's a lot harder so. to adopt a community uh, nowadays because it costs that much more to live in our sure. community than it Absolutely. did in two thousand six. So, but yeah, you would like to think that the the person they choose is ideally qualified, the uh, the the right as far as administrative and and leadership qualities, and can manage to find a place to live. Here in Southampton, as I recall, um, Bob was uh, the Express um, News Group Person of the Year just recently, and uh, I just I, I I really think we deal with a lot of people um, in our jobs, but Bob is one of the most uh, talented leaders I think we have out here, and so we wish him the best in his new endeavor as he makes that transition. Um, so I wanted to uh, Denise, we wanted to talk briefly about what's going on with the Mattituck Inlet Marina because Riverhead is feeling some of the impact of that uh, project out there. Tell us what's going on and how it's being felt for you guys locally. Well, they're not, we're not feeling it yet, <laughs> but um, so there's a, 
a longtime marina there, Strong's Strong's Marine uh, in the Mattituck Inlet, and they are um, they've proposed they want they want to build two um, rather large, like 52,000 square foot um, storage buildings. They have now they are now called um, the Strong's Yacht Center, and these buildings are going to be able to store yachts up to like eighty six feet long, and you know those really big vessels. Um, but the construction calls for the excavation of, um, you know, a major grade change of like f- about 43 feet. Um, wow. They're going to like dig out and ship off site uh, this wooded hillside, basically. Um, and it's like 135,000 cubic yards of materials. Now, I, that's just a number to me and most people, I guess. but what that translates into when you look through the um, the traffic study and the environmental impact statement and stuff is, you know, those um, material hauler tractor trailers that, um, you know, they have the 30 yard containers in the back. They're like 55 feet long. Um, it would be um, 4,500 um, trips wow. of, of those, of those to, uh, to take that material out and which they don't really have a destination for it yet, but they did their study and their traffic numbers based on the assumption that it's that material is going to be headed to points West. And so. um, Maybe they should just pay the truckers to drive around with it for, you know, as long as necessary. Just, (laughs) just to commercial. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, depending on what they actually dig up and the quality of it, I mean, that could be, you know, a pretty uh, lucrative um, endeavor as well. Right. Um, But, you know, that's a lot of trucks. And um, because of the location of this, this marina, uh, the trucks will come onto uh, Sound Avenue at a point um, right at the boundary with the town of Riverhead. And so other than, you know, the the uh, travel from the inlet to Sound Avenue, which is through a couple of three uh, very like kind of narrow residential roads, there are going to be some significant impacts there. But uh, from there, all of the travel is through the town of Riverhead mm-hmm. and um, it, along Sound Avenue to Northville Turnpike, the proposed truck route left onto Northville heading south on Northville Turnpike, which is a county road um, to County Road 58 to um, the Long Island Expressway terminus, uh, the western west uh, bound entrance ramp at exit 73 over there by Tanger, you know. Um, so that's a lot of travel through the town of Riverhead. And um, oh, you know, down, if you're not down Northville Turnpike, you said to 58? Yes. Yeah. Oh, great. potentially you know and these trucks like empty they weigh 12 tons right mm. and and full they are like 53 and a half tons per truck i can't bill if you're not familiar with these trucks right now you're going to be very familiar with them very soon i hope hope my foundation uh will survive Um, but you know i mean the town really did not um participate in so like through the the state environmental quality review process right there there has to be a a draft scoping statement which lays out what do you study you know what what how do you identify and identifies potential adverse impacts and talks about how you're going to discuss how they might be mitigated and they so then that gets circulated for comment and then they uh the the lead agency which in this case is the south hall planning board develops the final scoping statement and um, then the the applicant prepares the draft environmental impacts statement and that's the point that uh that it's, this process is at right now they uh, on monday adopted the uh, draft environmental impact statement as adequate for review for circulation and review so that started mm. a 60 day com- well yeah like a 60 day comment period uh there's going to be a a little more than 60 days. There's going to be a public hearing on May 15th. And I just wanted to let people know that this was happening so mm. that they could look at, we we put up the uh, the DEIS and the scoping statements so that they could know, um, you know, what the plans are and potentially, you know, comment. Um, the 
applicant was not required by South Hall to um, consult with the Riverhead Highway Superintendent or the Pol Riverhead Police Chief. Mm. And I mean, they're pending no. impacts are no. going to depend on uh, like what time of year. Right now, the plan is from mid December this year till sometime in June next year is when this is going to this excavation and transport is going to happen. But that's I, that's up for grabs. Like I, that's that's a, they'll, a they'll certainly be involved now. <laughs> well, yeah, and, the and, and the thing is, the like I, you know, the town was um, what was provided with notices. I mean, South South Hold Town, to their credit, um, you know, they they have all of their documents, all of their records online for pu free public access through this, you know, really terrific system that they have, and you can look at all the applications, all of the notices, the correspondence for every application that they process. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so in reviewing that, you know, you could see that the notices were provided to the town, but nobody from the town participated, Riverhead town participated in this in any way. So mm. when I called the police chief, you know, the other day, he was like, well, this is the first I'm hearing of this, uh, right. you know, yeah, I have concerns about, you know, and, you know, it's going to be like a lot of wear and tear on the roads. It's going to be, oh, sure, yeah. and, you know, nor, and anybody that travels along Sound Avenue, especially, you know, certain times of the year, um, I'm, like that intersection with Northville Turnpike and Sound Avenue is a constant backlog there. I mean, it's, yeah. Really, yeah. you know, it's just going to make things worse for a while. So, I'm glad at least you gave people some fair so, yeah, warning. I wanted that this to, is I wanted to make sure point. that people knew about yeah. it so they could comment on it. No question. So we we only have about two minutes left, but Michael, I want to give you some time to talk about uh, our hosts here at WLIWFM. You're in the middle of a fun drive, right? Today is Saturday, March 18th, and we begin our spring fun drive for 88.3 WLIWFM. We remind our listeners we are listener supported, dependent upon you, the listener, for your direct personal financial support. And during this fun drive, your gift will be matched. So we invite you to donate online at WLIWFM.org. That's WLIWFM.org. Or you may call us at 800-262-0717. That's 800-262-0717. Your contribution will allow us to continue to provide unique public radio blend of programming, including behind the headlines. So thank you all very much. I feel fairly confident I'm speaking for the group when I say that we all support the idea of the public coming out and providing some financial support for WLIWFM. I think it's an incredible resource for the entire East End. Uh, we're lucky to have them. And uh, I think it's, as with community newspapers and other media organizations, it's very important for the public to support the the outlets that they care about and you're listening right now so you care about this station um so uh i hope everybody will take michael's uh plea to heart and go online and make that donation and maybe become a sustaining member uh which i think is the best way to do it hey we all spend a couple of bucks a month on netflix and everything else right uh, WLIWFM should be on that list as well, no question. Uh, I want to thank all of our panelists today Michael Mackey of WLIWFM, Christopher Gangemi of the East Hampton Star, and thank you. De Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Thank you guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And thank you to my co host Bill Sutton, as always, for being here. And thank you back to you, Joe. So we're actually off for two weeks, but uh, we will be back in early April, April with uh, new editions of Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for listening. <music>